keep that passage open. I'm going to go through it pretty much verse by verse uh, through this sermon. But by way of intro, a few weeks ago, a, uh, a man by the name of Jim Downing uh, passed away. Jim was a personal mentor for me from a distance, but he was uh, also a, an organizational mentor to many of the older kind of campus outreach guys like me. Jim was 104 when he died a couple weeks ago. And when he was 86, uh, he came to Danielle and I's apartment when we lived in Carrollton, Georgia, and he spent a few nights with us and he invested in our lives and our marriages and, uh, and then our ministry at the University of West Georgia. And uh, Jim is the second oldest survivor of Pearl Harbor. There's one other guy in California who's 105 who's still living now from Pearl Harbor. You know, Pearl Harbor happened on December 7th, 1941. You can read about Jim's involvement at Pearl Harbor in his book called The Other Side of Infamy. It's fascinating uh, how he pulled men and, uh, and women out of the water and doused the flames with hoses as planes were still bombing. It's a fascinating story. And Jim's life uh, was part of that. But six years before that, so 1935, Jim Downing becomes a Christian on the USS West Virginia. He's led to Christ by a man named Virgil. And Virgil and Jim began to be a part of what was the beginnings of the Navigators. And Jim is called one of the original six of the Navigators. But this is what Jim said about Virgil when he led him to Christ. I knew it was Christ in him. I was attracted to Christ because of the quality of the life the guys I saw who were Christians. It was aboard the battleship West Virginia that I gave my life to Christ because I wanted what those other people had. Jim noticed the witness of Virgil and his other shipmates and he became a Christian. But there's two really remarkable things that happened as a result of this. You see, that was in 1935. Well, in 1933 is when the Navigators started. And between the years of 1933 and 1941, God had raised up so many witnesses in the naval bases that the whole Pacific fleet of ships had a witness for Christ on it. So when Pearl Harbor hit and launched America into World War II, yes, the power of the U.S. military was launched into the Pacific uh, theater, but so was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Literally hundreds of gospel-toting uh, soldiers were launched into the world. More remarkable than that is one of those men was a pilot and he was shot down over Japan and was put in a Japanese prison camp for years. And as providence would have it, he came in contact with the commander of the Japanese army that flew into Pearl Harbor. His last name was Fuchida and he led him to Christ. And for years, Colonel Fuchida and Captain Jim Downing were friends. Their initial introduction was one of infamy, right? But their legacy was Christ and the gospel. How does that happen? How does, how does stories like that happen all over the world? Because Jesus Christ is risen. That's why that happens. He's alive. And he is changing hearts. I watched Jim Downing's memorial service a few weeks ago and I wept most of the time through it to see the unreal influence on 
generations, global influence, cultural influence that one life could have as a Navy officer. He was married for 83 years to the same woman. Oh God, give us more people like that. Make me like that. (laughs) Uh, Here's what I want us to understand though as we get into this passage. Jim Downing was led to Christ through the witness of a man named Virgil. And Jim became a witness. And thousands of witnesses went all over the world so that the arch enemy of the United States, the commander of their army, now will be with us worshiping King Jesus and singing the new song, Worthy is the Lamb. That's power. That's real, real power. So let's look at what Jesus meant when he said that you were witnesses. Let's start with verse 44. And like I said, I'm gonna walk us through this passage because every word of this is, is really important and powerful. So let's start with verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Leon Morris says that this passage right here indicates that there is no portion of scripture that doesn't point to Jesus. When he says the law, the prophets, the Psalms, he means to say the whole Old Testament. And those Jewish uh, ears would have known that. Jesus is saying the whole Bible speaks about me. In fact, he said that in John 5. You look for the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but these are the scriptures that speak about me. But there's more going on here than just him connecting himself to the Old Testament. He intends for the disciples to hinge their faith not just on the miracle of the resurrection. That was true and that would propel them with power. But he intends for them to see this has been spoken about for generations and centuries. You need to hinge your faith on the eternal word of God. In fact, Peter would say this exactly in 2 Peter 1. He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Can there be anything more fully confirmed than a dead man coming back to life? Peter says, yes, the eternal word of God. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, the morning star rises in our hearts. You see what Peter is saying? Is yes, there's a resurrection that ought to be proclaimed to the world. Jesus is alive, but the eternal word of God is gonna transform your hearts and that's a more sure word. The word of God is powerful witness. But notice verse 45, what Jesus does. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The word here for opened literally means to disentangle. There was something garbled up in there. They were confused. They had had a whole bunch of learning. They didn't know anything. And Jesus disentangles their mind. He opened their eyes to see the scriptures. What was he trying to get them to see? There was probably a lot of stuff. (laughs) But primarily, because the context tells us this, what he was trying to get those Jewish guys to understand is it's not about your Jewishness. There is nothing inherently righteous about being a Jew. This gospel is for all nations and you guys need to reorient your thinking. You need to disentangle your thinking that this is not a Jewish religion. This is a global gospel and the nations are meant to worship Yahweh. Prejudice against the Gentiles was destroyed in the Old Testament, but for sure in the gospel of Jesus Christ. All men, are guilty of sin. Therefore, all men can be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. These Jewish disciples of Jesus needed to understand that. 
Let me just parenthetically teach something right here. This is true for us too. There is no superior nation, culture, generation, language, society, economy, etc., that can deal with man's root issue, which is needing their sins forgiven. There is only one king in one kingdom that has the power to do that. And it's King Jesus in his kingdom. Verse 46, what is he opening their minds? And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead. This is the basic, simplest gospel uh, explanation you can have, that the Messiah would die and raise to new life. That's the gospel. And he says that's found in the Old Testament. Well, where? Where? Where in the law? Where in the prophets? Where in the Psalms? Well, let's, let's, let's look at that for just a second. Where do you see the gospel, this good news that the Messiah would die and rise again in the law? Well, Exodus 20 is the giving of the law. And the giving of the law starts, you know, it's the Ten Commandments. It's where Exodus 20. The very beginning of the Ten Commandments says this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And when we were teaching my young kid, my kids when they were young, the Ten Commandments, and we'd sit at the dinner table and, you know, and I was an early childhood education major, so I, you know, I got all these preschool illustrations that serve purposes for eight-year-olds or whatever. And uh, we put together hand motions for the Ten Commandments and, and, and the whole passage there. And our hand motion for Exodus 20, one through two was, I brought you out of the house of slavery, out of bondage. And we were indicating to our kids, the law was given to people that were already free. The law wasn't given to make you free. It was given to people who were already free. They had been brought out of slavery. How were they freed in Exodus 20? Passover lamb. They were able to walk out of the bondage of Egypt because they had sacrificed the lamb and the angel of death passed over. Right there's the gospel. More confirmed in Exodus 24, when Moses actually institutes the old covenant to them, he does it in a pool of blood. Lambs, goats, bulls shed for the sins of the people that were gonna break that covenant repeatedly. The law was given in the context of gospel. Where do we see the gospel? In the prophets. Probably the most familiar to a lot of us and the, the simplest one is Isaiah 53. The prophet Isaiah says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. The prophet Hosea in chapter six foretells of a resurrection of God's people, saying that the Messiah is gonna rise and he's gonna bring his people with him prophesying a resurrection. The prophets speak repeatedly the gospel message. What about the Psalms? Psalm 22 is the most clear. This is the Psalm that Jesus actually quotes on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turning his face on his son. Why? Because on his son was the sin of the world. God forsook his son in that moment that you and I might be included in his redemption. Psalm 16 says that he would not abandon his holy one to Hades. He would raise him up. In his presence was fullness of joy. The law, the prophets, the Psalms all attest to this gospel message. But look at verse 45. Not only do they attest to the, prop, to the gospel message, they testify to something else too. 
the word and, you know, it's a conjunction. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Not only would the, is the message of the Messiah suffering and rising proclaimed in the Old Testament, but that, that message should be proclaimed to all nations is also told in the Old Testament. I'm gonna get to that next week. So come back next week and I'll show you next week how the law, the prophets, and the Psalms tell us to go proclaim good news. So come back next week. But let's stay, let's stay the course here. Ken Hughes said this, that Easter night after the resurrection, privately locked up with the 11, Jesus grounded gospel and mission in the Old Testament. He showed that the law, the prophets, and the Psalms all taught his suffering, all taught his death, all taught his resurrection, all taught mission to the world beginning with Jerusalem. The gospel was and is for the world. But then look at verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. What does he mean? Well, the Greek word here for witness is the word martus. And you can hear what that word can mean. But when you, when you look at a Greek word with English translation, it has what's called a semantic range. It can mean multiple things. And this word witness in the New Testament is used 35 times. 13 of them are used in the book of Acts. We're gonna talk about that next week a lot. But right here, what is the meaning? Well, the three meanings that are possible is one who testifies to legal matters. Think of a courtroom. So if the disciples were on trial for Jesus's life and death and resurrection, would they be witnesses? Yeah, they could, they could give factual evidence. Yeah, we saw him here, we saw him there. It would be in a courtroom. That's one way a witness is used. The second is more of an internal witness. They affirm inwardly this happened because something happened to me as a result of that situation. There's an internal witness. And then thirdly is the martus idea, martyr. They actually die for their faith. And 13 times in the book of Acts, they're said to be witnesses. And they're dying all over the place for this message. But the second meaning is the one I wanna emphasize this morning that's, that's here. That there was a, a witness internally that the disciples were to have about Jesus and his resurrection. Notice verse 49. Jesus says, here's the power of how this is gonna happen. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This power is graphically seen later in Luke's second book, Acts, Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And we have Pentecost and the, the gospel blows up all over Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But right here, he's saying to them, I'm gonna send you the Spirit. And here's what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. He will teach you all things. He will bring to your mind everything I taught you. In John 16, he says, when he comes, he, the Spirit, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. But be so before we look at the mission of Christ to the nations, we first need to look at the mission of Christ in our own hearts because you are a witness. You don't just witness to people, you are a witness. And you are a witness by the transformation. Paul said to Timothy, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in them. For so by doing, you will save yourself and your hearers. 
There is a gospel expectation of transformation. It's not just a message to be proclaimed. It's a transformative message to our hearts. Let's look at it. And let's use the grid that Jesus used here, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Here's a question I wanna ask. Where is my transformation seen in the law? How does the law help me be transformed? Well, it really matters how you view yourself in position to the law. If you see the law as your opportunity to keep so that you can show God how committed you are and how, how good you are, then you are gonna be judged by the law and every dot of it's gonna be held over your head. Good luck with that. Instead, the law is given to show you your need for Christ, what God intends for your life and where you should turn for repentance and change. It has, it's an issue of righteousness. Where are you gonna find your rightness to the law? Either yourself, look God, here's what I've done, or Christ, look what he's done on my behalf. Martin Luther famously espoused three uses of the law. The first one was to kind of curb uh, all the heinous sin that can be in the world. The the law of God, this is why we call ourselves a Judeo-Christian society, okay? Is because the law of God is just good for people. It's good not to kill each other. It's good not to have adultery. It's good not to uh, steal from each other. So that's a curb. It curbs our behavior. But it does more than that. The script, the, the law, Luther said, was also a mirror. You look at it and you see, ha, I fail. Where do you go when you fail? You go to Christ. So the, it was a mirror that pointed you to Christ. You look at the law and you run to Christ. And the third aspect of the law was that it was a guide. I've trusted Christ. I'm a free person. Now, how do I live? What does God expect of me? The, the telltale question about the law is whose righteousness are you trusting in? Christ is the only one who kept the law. And self-righteousness is the thing that is most scary. And I've thought about this a lot. The self-righteous, if it were a coin, <laughs> has two heads, two, uh, two sides, the heads and the tails. The heads is the one we most think about with self-righteous, someone who parades themselves around as uh, the, the best. They're always continually giving you their spiritual resume, who they know, what they've done, the T-shirts they have, the Christian music they listen to, the, the family heritage, you know, how many years they've been a part of the church, how much they've served. They're, they're self-righteous. They're trusting in their goodness. But the other side of the self-righteous coin is equally as heinous. And this is the person who is always telling you how miserable they are, what a failure they are how much they break the law and live in continual shame and guilt. And they indicate that their own self-contempt and self-hatred is better than Christ's condemnation on the cross. Well, Christ can't pay for my sin. I gotta pay for it and keep beating myself up all time. Friends, I wanna tell you what Tim Keller said. Cheer up. You're worse than you think you are. But you're more loved than you could ever hope for. Seriously, listen to me. If you find yourself as the heads of that coin, parading yourself around as self-righteous, telling everybody how great you are, you need to understand, Jesus died because you're a sinner. And you're a lot worse than you think you are. And if you're the other side of the coin, let me tell you, he was condemned for you. He became a curse so that you would be included in him. So you go to the law to find your perfect righteousness in Christ, it will change you. How do you testify to the world about the law? You trust Christ, trust him. Second, how are you being changed by the prophets? This is a doozy. 
The prophets weren't the kind of guys you invited over for drinks. They were weird. They were truth tellers. They cut through the malarkey, the bull crap, <laughs> the manipulation, the masks. The, they, they were not gonna, you weren't gonna snow these guys. They were there to tell you the truth. They didn't care if you liked them. Robert, our senior pastor, he has a great quote. He says, Jesus did indeed say the truth will set you free. Jesus was the prophet. But sometimes the truth has to first disrupt, unsettle, and maybe even crush you. Truth is hard, and prophets told the truth. So how does this affect you? Do you have prophetic voices in your life? Are you listening to Jesus? Are you allowing him to pull the mask of hypocrisy? Are you allowing him to separate the manipulations and the, and the, 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 the duplicitousness of your life so that he can tell you the truth and set you free? The telltale question here is, are you right in your own eyes? This was the horrible refrain, often in the, particularly the whole book of Judges, but throughout the scriptures is that the people were just right in their own eyes. They saw no need for the prophets and they killed them all. And in fact, they killed the prophet, Jesus. We're right, you're not right, we're gonna destroy you. How wrong they were. They killed the son of God because they were unwilling to listen to him. Don't be a stiff-necked person like that. Listen to the prophetic voices in your life. You know, you know how this is when you get defensive, when you're corrected, when you try to justify things, you know you're not listening to the prophetic voice. It's interesting. What Christ did when he left the earth was he left his church behind to be the prophetic voice of his in our lives. From preaching, from small groups, from parenting, from a host of ways. How do the prophets transform you? You listen to Christ. You listen to him. You let the prophetic word speak to your heart. Lastly, how about the Psalms? I love this. How do the Psalms transform us? The gospel in the Psalms. The word Psalm literally means a sacred song. It's music. Andrew Fletcher, a 17th century political activist, said this. He said, I don't care who writes the laws of the nations. I want to write their songs. He understood what every, everybody understands. Songs tell the, the ethos, the culture, the smells of a nation. And in fact, when King Jesus is sitting on his throne, we're going to see this next week, and they're worshiping him, you know the scriptures say? They sang a new song. They psalmed him a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll, for by your blood you were slain and purchased for God for men from every tribe, every nation, every language. And they've become a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. That was a new song. What's the music of your life? What are you singing? The Psalms are the emotive part of the scripture. It means that you're human and meant to feel. But sadly, a lot of us are either overly stoic in our emotions, which leads to dogmatism and cynicism and a critical spirit and sometimes just flat out being mean. Then you got the other spectrum where you're blown to and fro by the whims of your emotional experiences, which leads to a fickle and finicky faith, leads to a lack of peace and stability. Folks, I wanna tell you how you relate to the Psalms witnesses to the world how you feel about Jesus. 
Will you let yourself feel? This is a Presbyterian church. I need to say this to us. It's okay to feel. The Psalms are full of emotions of anger and joy, depression and ecstasy. It's all over. In Christ, you have the freedom to feel like that. So how do you bear witness to Christ's work through the Psalms? Sing a new song. Sometimes it's a song of joy. Sometimes it's a song of sadness. Sometimes it's a song of anger against injustice or a song of hope, all of which come when I'm rightly connected to Jesus in my heart. Jesus said, and we, we used our repentance was this passage, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, I'm the law. I am the truth, I'm the prophet. And I am the life, I'm the song. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's the total package. And he's yours. He alone is your Savior. Not just of the world. He's your Savior. He loves you. And he purchased you. Told you, my, told you about my friend Jim. And uh, there's so many things that I uh, would love to say about him. But his favorite verse was from the prophet Ezekiel. Jim Downing's favorite verse was Ezekiel 36, 23, and it says this. The nations will know that I am the Lord when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Jim Downing's favorite verse, which he lived out for 104 years, was the Lord loves the nations and he intends to reach them by vindicating his holiness in you. May God give us the grace to be transformed by this gospel and so be a light to the nations. And next week, we're gonna see how that happens from this passage. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this prophetic word. Jesus, you are the full picture seen from the Old Testament and law and the prophets and Psalms. You are the fulfillment of everything that has happened in your word. As Paul would say, all the promises of God find their yes in you. Lord, as we come now to your table, I pray that you would remind us of those promises as we take of your body and your, your blood here. Remind us that we are indeed witnesses of the transforming power of the gospel in our hearts. Help us now, we pray. Christ's name, amen.